welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome to episode four of A Congruent Life. I'm your host, Andy Gray, and I'd like to sincerely thank you for joining us. This is a new project, and I've been really gratified by the support and encouragement from all of you, so thank you. The purpose of this podcast is to share the journeys and stories of people who are taking charge of their lives and living in an authentic way, whatever that might mean to them. I had a great conversation recently with Timber Hawkeye, who wrote a very popular book called Buddhist Boot Camp. We joined the conversation where I asked Timber about how he is introduced to the audience during his book tours. I am a lot of things, and not one of them defines me. And the intention or whatever it is they're trying to do by labeling me as one thing immediately eliminates that I can't be other things as well. And so when I do book tours and whatnot and the audience wants to know about me, I just look at them and say, I'm, I'm you. I, you know, I go through the same internal conflict and the same issues and I deal with it either the same way or differently. And that's how we can learn from one another, but I'm not different than others. And sometimes the attempt is to somehow differentiate me from others when it, that's just, it won't work. <laughs> So you've been finding yourself on the road quite a bit uh, doing these these book tours? Yeah. I initially self-published the paperback, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I sent complimentary copies of the book to all the bookstores across the U.S., hoping that they would carry the book. And a lot of the independent bookstores got back to me and said, that's not really how it works. You have to be set up with the right distributor so bookstores can get it with the right discount. You know, Barnes & Noble said the same thing. They rejected my first um, submitted book with some guidance on how to go about doing it differently. So I changed my distributor, started again, and that's when they all started picking it up. And I developed these intimate relationships with bookstore owners who really wanted to help spread the message. So when they invited me or when the book was in it, eventually republished um, by HarperCollins in hardcover and they wanted to send me on tour, I said, great, I want to visit all these independent bookstores that really helped carry me through the process of initially self-publishing and then now. And Harper had no intention of doing that. They wanted to send me to you know bookstores that are in their database that are they didn't care about my personal relationship so much with these independents. So we talked a lot and essentially decided that as long as I visit the bookstores they want me to visit, I can also visit the ones that I want to visit. And so instead of doing five bookstores, I did about 32 in six weeks. It was about 12,000 miles in a rental car across the country. And it was fantastic. Some of these bookstores had 200 people show up. And the bookstore, of course, wasn't large enough to hold everyone. So we held it at a local church or a library. And it was just wonderful to finally get to meet the people I've been talking to online 
for a couple of years and actually see the faces. It's been wonderful and I'm now invited to go back. So I suspect I'll be on the road for a while longer. What a neat experience to be able to <laughs> travel the country in that way and, and put these uh, faces with names and so forth. Yeah, and, and putting, you know, the only way to make it affordable is to put out the request that people let me sleep on their couches or in their spare bedrooms. And, you know, I, I had no other means by which to do it. And I got over a thousand invitations into people's homes and it was just a matter of coordinating it and making it happen. And every experience has been fantastic. And it's just, it's such a mutual relationship and I, I enjoyed every moment of it. So how did you go about building this, this sort of online community? <laughs> I, I didn't, I had no idea. I had no social media experience of any sort. I wasn't even on uh, Facebook. And I was living at a monastery completely off the grid with no internet connection or cellular reception. And I was getting handwritten letters from my friends who you know, gotten used to receiving emails from me on a regular basis, just letting them know what's going on with me. And they wrote me saying, you know, you got to get out of there because we missed getting your updates from you. And I met with a friend who suggested that I do a blog and a Facebook page. And I didn't, I didn't know what to think of it at first. And she pulled out her phone and showed me that on her phone she has a link to someone's blog. And the other person who was at lunch with us said, oh, you know, I, I have that guy's book. So the seed was planted and I decided that, you know, not being at the monastery is the right thing to do. And I kind of created this Facebook page. I knew I wanted to call it Buddhist Boot Camp, mainly because up until that point, every time I watched Fight Club, the movie, I thought to myself, this is Buddhist Boot Camp. It's it's all the teachings just just in a very condensed, in-your-face way. And I was raised very military, so I thought if I was to share what I had learned, it would come across in a very military way, very direct, very forward. And I had no idea it would end up being as gentle as it did. I actually didn't know that I could be as gentle as I turned out to be. So I created the Facebook page Buddhist Boot Camp. And I, it was just what, a couple of years ago, and I remember sending emails to my friends asking them to like the page, and now it's at over 70,000 people, and it's just happening by itself. I, I didn't build it. Buddhist Boot Camp isn't mine. It's everybody who's a part of it is contributing to it and asking questions. And before it was even a book, they would ask a question online, and my answer to them would become the next chapter. So that's what the first book ended up being, was essentially a collection of emails that I had sent to my friends for eight years, some journal entries, and some online posts that made enough of an impact to include in the book. So what are some of the underlying principles that you talk about in Buddhist Boot Camp? Uh, the, the first principle of Buddhist Boot Camp is that the opposite of what you know is also true. And it's a difficult one to chew on and swallow because we'd like to think that what we know, what our version of the truth is, that's reality. That's, that's the end-all, be-all. 
And when we meet someone who has a completely different reality, we either try to prove them wrong and prove ourselves superior or, you know, there's, there's judgment. There's some kind of separation between us and them where in reality, they're just, their time, place and circumstance is different. So their reality is different. So if we accept that the opposite of what we know is also true, and in fact, we question what we know, then we are opening ourselves immediately to acceptance and understanding and having compassion towards someone who has a completely different life than us. And we ourselves can have a different life five years from now and learn that what we thought five years prior was the truth was just a little piece of it. And there's a lot more to it than just that. So it's really about no judgment. Even if someone does something that is unbelievably offensive, hurtful, to go to compassion and understand that they are looking at the world very differently. It's the same world, but they see it and are affected by it differently than we are. And to me, that, that opens the door to understanding rather than ridicule or judgment or bullying. And we can honor not just everyone's path, but where they are on the path. And that's, that's a pretty key principle right there. So clearly there's often terrible things, tragic things happening in the world. And I think our natural inclination is to rush to judgment and, and to not have this compassion. Can you give us maybe some practical advice on, on how to maintain this compassionate stance in the face of tragedy and hurt? It's interesting that my, my first reaction to hearing you ask the question even is the labeling of things as tragic and difficult and terrible when those are really labels that we put on something that's happening and we deem it as terrible. When we operate from a place of trust, of complete and total faith in the process and the universe that everything happens for a reason and that we don't need to even know the reason or understand it to trust it. But in, in reality, on a day-to-day -day basis, I will give you a very personal example. I was born and raised in Israel. And, you know, a lot of what Americans see on the news is all of the fighting that goes on over there. But in Israel, when somebody bombs a bus, you know what we do? <laughs> we catch the next one. And I know that that sounds really insensitive, but we're talking about an entire culture that is surrounded by terrorism and terrorists, and yet they refuse to be terrorized. And that's really the key is to not have us be defined by these things that happen to us, by these things that we witness and experience or what we have said or what we have done, because we are not any of those things. We are who we choose to become. But it's in our language. You know, if somebody cuts us off, then we would say, I'm angry. And, and we are defined by this transient feeling, because really, we, a more honest reaction would say, I feel anger. And that's honest. It honors it. It says, I feel anger. Here it is. It's coming and it's going to go. In two minutes from now, a good song is going to come on the radio and we're going to sing along and be okay. And we're going to honor that just as temporary as the anger. But when we define ourselves through these fleeting feelings, 
then it changes the way we look at the world. We perceive it from, from a place of fear or, you know, we, uh, we, we make fear-based decisions and we look at the world through the eyes of a victim. We are victimized by these things that happen to us rather than observing these things that happen to us and honoring it. The, the main distinction I learned between a feeling and an emotion is that a feeling is, is extremely natural. It happens to all of us. We feel joy, sadness, excitement, sorrow, anger, all of, all of it. And it's fine. And we feel it and then it goes away. In fact, I, I, was, I was taught that a feeling lasts about 45 seconds and then it's gone. But an emotion, an emotion is a feeling with a story attached to it. And that emotion can last for years. That, that's how people stay angry at something for 20 years or longer. And they won't let it go because they keep feeding that story. And so if we just don't assign meaning to that feeling, if we don't emote, then we can observe something that happens and we can have it change us. We can change the way we are because we observed something that doesn't sit well with us. But to keep feeding that story and stay angry at somebody for 20 years when that person probably doesn't even remember upsetting you or doesn't even know that they did, it, it's damaging to us, not them. Quite often we stay angry at someone because we feel they deserve it. <laughs> well, they're not suffering because of our anger. We are. So in a nutshell, it's just not being defined by these things that happen. Can you tell us a bit about your, your own journey? How did you get introduced or attracted to Buddhism? The introduction to Buddhism was uh, kind of a roundabout way. I, I was first introduced to meditation, not necessarily Buddhism, through a book called Meditation by Eknath Iswaran, which is interesting because in it he focuses on prayer and meditation and the morning prayer is the prayer of St. Francis, which is Catholic. And so although I'm technically Jewish and ordained Buddhist, and my mantra is Hindu, my morning prayer is the Catholic prayer of St. Francis, <laughs> it's okay. I, my altar has Jesus on it and Buddha and St. Francis, and they get along just fine. I started reading about meditation and the practice of controlling the mind. And it made so much sense to me because we have rarely ever trained it to do what we want it to do and we just let it run around like a puppy without training it to, you know, stay by our side. And and then we can have this mind that becomes our best friend rather than, you know, this unknowing thing that keeps us up at night and that can't stop thinking about things it wants to think as if it's a separate entity. So it was logic that really brought me to Buddhism. It wasn't any um, spiritual practice necessarily. It wasn't any ceremony or ritual. It was just, it made sense. It, I'm, I'm a very logical person and I used to look at things very black and white. And I remember the first time I heard the Dalai Lama speak, he was talking about self-control, determination, and freedom from anger. And two years prior to that, I had those same words tattooed on my chest. So when I heard him 
say those things, I, it occurred to me that while religion, quote unquote, is, is a collection of beliefs and philosophies, and I have my collection of beliefs and philosophies, it just isn't organized, it, I'm still not alone. There are other people out there who believe what I do to some degree. So I went into Tibetan Buddhism pretty heavily and I was in full robes for a couple of years before I realized it somehow became more complicated than I thought even the Buddha ever intended for his teachings to be. So the Lama I was studying with suggested I try Zen. So I did, and it was significantly simpler. There wasn't any of the visual stimuli that is so prominent in Tibetan Buddhism. But there was still a lot of the dogma attached to it. And I just, I, it, it, to me, it was never about being a Buddhist. It's about being a Buddha. It's not about, you know, celebrating Jesus so much as trying to be Jesus-like. And then we can celebrate him and the Buddha and anybody else we find inspiring. So it's about being the best version of us there is. It's, as the Dalai Lama says, don't try to use what you learned from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. And to me, that's the most liberating invitation of all. Because then you're not trying to fit into a box. You're just you, and you're trying your best. And what more can we do? You observed recently that a year ago you would have never pictured your life being like it is today. <laughs> or any idea what the next year will bring. No idea. So sounds, yeah. sounds very consistent with that. Do you have any reflections that go along with that, perhaps, about experiencing and rolling with unexpected change? Yeah. We can all look at our lives five years ago and realize that we today are very different than we were five, ten years ago. So by default, we can know with certainty that five years and ten years from now, we will be different than we are now. And to me, that's exciting. I'm not scared of change. I almost seek it. My mother used to call me a gypsy. I, I just like exploring and, and you know moving from Israel to the States. It was the first year of high school. I didn't speak a word of English, but I was determined. I was determined to be the all-American kid. You know, So I got a bicycle and I got a paper route because that's what being the all-American kid to me looked like. And I was determined not to have an accent. So when I would say certain words with an accent, when I would say pilo, my friends would say, it's not pillow, it's pillow. I would just make a mental note not to say pillow ever again and then move on. So this whole constant changing, it's, it's kind of like being on a wave, you know, and you're on your board and you just, you, you can't stay still. That's impossible. You, the ocean will take you where it does. And the more we let go and just learn how to navigate through those waves, the more we'll actually enjoy the ride because resisting it is futile. So, yeah, just, you know, I was in America, so I wanted to be the all-American kid. And I was in Hawaii, and I learned how to slow down and how to let things go. That's The Hawaiian culture there is so beautiful to embrace and so difficult for people to adjust to because there's no sense of urgency on the island which is just a foreign concept to mainlanders. It's very difficult to adjust to being back, that's for sure. What would you consider to be some of your notable failures, and what have they taught you? I, I, would, 
I would like to say the deep lesson is the failure is to let go of expectations. Um, because it would, yeah, that, that's, that's the only failure is to, to, to have expectations. But I mean, if the opposite of failure is, I guess, success, and, and to me, and, and Buddhist boot camp, success means being happy. I can't think back to a time in my life other than my very early childhood where I can say I wasn't happy. I was happy when I lived in the Bay Area. I was happy when I lived in Seattle. I was happy when I lived in Israel. I was happy when I had a house and two dogs, and I was happy when I lived in a monastery. Even, even at the monastery, people asked me, do you miss Hawaii? And I didn't know how to answer that because it, if I said I did, it would imply that I would rather be there than where I was. And I don't think at any given moment I would rather be somewhere else than where I am. And it's interesting, you know, it's like Portland. Portland's great. I love it, you know, but there's the, the calling here. I, I keep being called to, to California, for example. And so, you know, the only resistance would be, but I like Portland. I want to stay here. Or it's such a great city and everything is, is biking or walking distance and all, all that's great. But there, I'm, I keep being called there. So it would actually be in, <laughs> probably in my best interest to, to just be mobile <laughs> and go where I need to go and not try to set up camp, so to speak, anywhere. Uh, there's a fan of the book in the UK who is also a uh, flight attendant. And he wants to fly me out there so I can do a book tour there like I did across the US. And so the more flexible I am, you know, the, the easier it, it would be to get there. So as I mentioned, the, the mission of A Congruent Life is, is about sharing stories of, of authenticity. So what does living authentically or congruently mean to you? Bridging the gap between what we believe and how we act in the world. And that's challenging because we develop these habitual tendencies through life and we do things a certain way. But then we learn something new, and perhaps our belief change, changes, but our habitual patterns don't. So I guess living a congruent life is, is altering our habitual tendencies, our behavior, to be more in line with our beliefs. And it, it could be very, very simple. You know, um, I'm, I drink a lot of water throughout the day. And I used to just always have a big, you know, the, the popular drinking water bottle with me everywhere I went. And then, you know, come to find out that drinking out of plastic is not really good for you and it has all this stuff in it. And I was like, yeah, but it's really convenient, you know? And it's like, but wait, what, what's, what's the point here? And so can you still do what you're doing, which is drink water all day, but do it while applying this new lesson that you learned? You know, um, we can be very much against animal cruelty, for example, and then one day learn that our favorite toothpaste is, taste, is tested on animals. So bridging the gap between what we believe and how we act in the world means giving up the very thing that we think we like so much, that our favorite toothpaste, and finding one that's more in line with our values. And it means constantly changing because information is constantly coming in and it may contradict a belief that we had five years ago. And that's okay. It's, but to live a congruent life is to, to have our beliefs, which are fluid, 
but have our behavior reflect it um, at the same time. Does that make sense? That does make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes it does in my head, but you can imagine trying to write it and, and have, you know, writing has just been so challenging because of the difference between intention and impact. So even if I write two sentences to post online, understanding immediately that within one hour, over 100,000 people are going to see it. And so I have to put on 100,000 different brains and go, can anyone possibly read this and take it the wrong way? And the answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) There's always going to be someone (laughs) who's going to take it and read it the wrong way. And so my challenge is to articulate it in such a way to where even if someone doesn't agree with it, they can still at least say, I get why you said that. You know, it, and, and the challenge has always been with my dad because he very much understands what I believe. He doesn't buy into any of it, so to speak, but he understands why I do. And I think that's way more important than both of us agreeing on the same thing. So you had this journey from Tibetan Buddhism and then Zen and experiencing being in a monastery. Um, And then you ultimately left the monastery. Can you tell us a little bit about why you left the monastery and what you see as the balance between action and contemplation? I left because, as I said earlier, I got these letters from people saying, you know, you got to get out of there because we, we can't be in touch with you while you're in there. And it made me realize that I am of no use, of no benefit to the outside world if I keep myself tucked away at a monastery. All the reasons to stay there were completely selfish. It's because I wanted to be there. You know, it's, it would be me moving back to Hawaii because I love it, but it's not about me. When, when you take vows to be of service, to go where you're called upon to be, you, you can't be picky and choosy about where you go. You go where you need to be. You help whoever needs help. And, and that's, that's the intention. And so I, I couldn't stay there. It, it, I, I believe deeply that what we're here to learn is to be completely and totally selfless. So the contemplation is always, is my behavior strictly selfish and is it just to benefit me or am I living and doing what I'm doing to benefit others? And if at any point it feels more selfish than not, then I I adjust. I adjust where I live, what I do, you know, what kind of, um, you know, bottle I choose to drink water out of and you know, what companies I choose to support and which I do not, uh, what I eat and what I don't. And it, it's, it stops being about me. You know, I, I, I stopped eating meat in, in the 90s, not because I didn't like it. I love it. <laughs> but it just felt selfish. Now, my mother has been a vegetarian her whole life, and I, I know that it can be done wrong, that, you know, it's important to balance the diet and make sure you get enough calcium and iron and protein. And if people just, just jump into vegetarianism without doing the research, being a vegetarian can actually be extremely harmful. So doing the research, and I, I have my blood tested three times a year to make sure that now as a vegan, I'm still getting enough protein and calcium and iron and B12s and that everything is balanced. Because 
I don't know that what I'm doing is right. For all I know, I could be completely off mark and the meat eaters have it all right. <laughs> I, there's no sense of superiority here. And if a doctor shows up in a few days and says, Timber, there's something missing from your diet that you can only get from this animal byproduct, I will, I will have to sit and adjust my thinking and go, what, you know, what am I doing? But so long as I can see that by taking others into consideration, I can still sustain myself while causing as, as little harm on others as possible, then why wouldn't I? Because I like steak? I don't think that's a good enough reason for me to do it. It wouldn't sit well with me any more than staying at the monastery would have sat well with me as much as I loved it. So you're you're in a bit of transition yourself right now, it sounds like, and don't really have a an idea of what will what the next year will bring for you. But what current project in your world are you most excited about? Yeah, I have no idea what the next year will bring or if there will even be a next year. You know, I it, it's very challenging to be this fluid and say this is what I'm working on today and to look too far into the future because I, I have no idea what's going to happen. The project I'm working on now, uh, Buddhist Boot Camp, the book is being used as part of the curriculum in a school in Canada. And that's a really promising project. It's a Catholic school too. So that's really promising to, to be able to integrate and in looking at the world through the eyes of love and not fear. And I'm also working with correctional facilities in the U.S. and in Canada where inmates get a free copy of the book, uh, yoga classes, meditation classes. And that's definitely one of the projects I'm really hoping to expand and reach to all correctional facilities that are willing to cooperate and work with. It, the book resonates a lot with inmates because it, it stresses so much the importance that we are not we are not defined by what we have done. We, it, it's who we choose to be today. And that's true every single day. I am not what I've done in the past. I, and, and so many times we judge people on what they've done then. It doesn't mean that I'm not responsible for the consequences of my actions in the past. But part of being responsible for that is, is responding to situations differently in the future. And there's so much forgiveness there and so much letting go and, and less rigidity than beating ourselves up for mistakes we made in the past. It's just accepting that we just, you know, saying I'm sorry it is not a, um, it doesn't make a person weak, I don't think. It's, it, it's, it's a self-proclamation that I now know more than I did then. That's so empowering to me and, and to so many others, as it turns out. Because I had, I, the book essentially was a published journal. I didn't know who would read it. But to find out that it's, you know, everywhere from, you know, people at the book talks were in their 80s and in their 20s and in their teens. Um, and I'm getting letters from people behind bars or people in the corporate world and people in third world countries. It's just mind-blowing so I any project that comes along the way that says here's where this information can be useful I'm looking forward to is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with regarding authenticity yes to not 
not be not be so afraid to be vulnerable with one another. You know, we, we work really, really hard to present the best version of ourselves to everyone in our life. The airbrushed, photoshopped version of us, the best pictures of us online. And I, I saw a post on Facebook the other day that encapsulated this concept. And it, it was extremely rude. Uh, it was funny, but it, it, it was true. It said, may your life one day be as wonderful as you pretend it is on Facebook. <laughs> and, and that's, it's, it's just so true because we work so hard to present it as so wonderful. And, and very much like the lotus flower that sits atop of the pond, it's not about just presenting the flower and having everyone gawk at it and say it's so beautiful. I would like to invite people to talk about that journey through the mud because that's where we're all alike. We all go through these challenges, this internal conflict, these voices in our heads that tell us to be greedy and selfish and hurtful and needy. But we also have this other voice and, and that tells us to be compassionate and kind and giving and forgiving. But we don't talk about that conflict ever. And I, I would love for people to be vulnerable about that. I get emails from so many who say, you're so courageous for being honest. I don't think it's an act of bravery to be honest. It's, it's what connects us. So share, share everything and invite people into your world. You realize that we're all alike. We're all being challenged by the same things and we may deal with them differently, but the challenges are all the same. So that, that would be, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. You'll find that people won't judge you. They'll understand you better and they'll want you in their life even more. How, how can our listeners engage with you? Considering the, the uh, number of people and the momentum that this is picking up, uh, Facebook apparently is, is the best way. Even, even the website, you know, BuddhistBootCamp.com is... It's essentially a blog. It's a free website. I, I don't even have an actually, you know, functioning website where people can interact and go back and forth. It's true, they can contact me, but, you know, there's hundreds, and I try to respond to everyone, and it's very challenging. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that along the way I, I can, you know, find someone who is interested in expanding the website and has the skills with which to do that and to take that over and do it. So, you know, one of the big concepts in the book is to be grateful. And when I do events, there's a big Buddhist bootcamp gratitude wall that says, what are you grateful for? And people write little notes and stick it on there. And it just taps us into gratitude, which turns everything we have into enough. And I would love for that to be online. I would love for there to be an actual space where people can write little notes about things they're grateful for and it'll be posted on there. And that's just one of many ideas. I just, yeah, so many people are under the impression that there's a Buddhist boot camp team that are constantly working around the clock to make it happen, but it's just me. <laughs> and it's becoming really challenging. And I'm reaching out, I'm getting some help. Um, there's this woman in L.A. who contacted me because she wanted to put an event together down there. And 
And I bowed in gratitude to her and, and she did it and it's happening and it's wonderful. I just, I need to open myself up to that more while maintaining the integrity behind the book so it doesn't take off into a direction that's not congruent with my life. Well, Timber Hawkeye, thank you very much for spending this time with us and sharing your stories. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Timber Hawkeye. Since this is episode number four, you can access the webpage for this episode by going to acongruentlife.net slash four in your web browser. There I'll put links to the Buddhist Bootcamp book, website, and Facebook page. The book link is an affiliate link, so if you'd like to purchase the book, doing it through that link will provide a bit of support to the show and not cost you anything extra. And please do check out the Buddhist Bootcamp Facebook page. Timber posts there pretty frequently some great reflections. Thank you so much for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. I really do appreciate it. People have been asking me how they can support A Congruent Life, for which I'm very grateful. One of the most valuable things that you can do, especially at this early stage of the podcast, is to leave a positive review on the iTunes store. If you're already subscribed to A Congruent Life on iTunes, you can simply go to the show and click Leave a Review. If not, you can click the iTunes link on our webpage to get there and perhaps consider subscribing. It's totally free and you'll automatically get each episode as it's published. And as always, please email me your feedback and suggestions to feedback at acongruentlife.net. Again, thank you, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.